What is going on? We are back, baby! Canucks Hour back for year two here on Sportsnet 650 as I blow out the levels uh, for producer Dom with pure excitement and pure adrenaline. Pure anxiety from the from the extremely driving, tense intro music that I miss so much. So much. Into screaming, into absolute screaming into the mics. That's how excited I am to be back. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. He is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who, of course, of course, you know, you can read his work at The Athletic as well. I've got uh, I've, I've got a page full of reads to get through here, Drantzer, but before I do... I love to hear it. Let's pay the back. bills. Let's well, pay the bills. Yes, exactly. Before <laughs> I get to that, welcome back, my guy. We're back in studio. It's been a couple months. It feels like longer than that. I'm very excited. Very excited to be here. And we're here for the extended, pluralized version That's of right. the show, right? Canucks hours, multiple. Obviously, we'll have more on what to expect from us this year soon, very soon. Yep. But catch us this week, plural, Canucks Hour Extended Edition. It's going to be a ton of fun. More on our uh, our schedule for the week in just a second. Uh, Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and, and Drancer by Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com. We are, of course, also coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. And 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com. As you said, Drancer, special bonus two-hour extended editions of the show all this week. 11 to 1 today, 11 to 1 tomorrow, then... You and I will be live in Whistler Thursday and Friday for training camp. 10 to 12 Thursday and Friday is the show. That's going to be a blast. Again, live from training camp uh, with the Canucks in Whistler. And we got a special show planned on Saturday as well. So lots to look forward to this week. Plus, we've got some exciting plans for the show that we're not quite ready to announce for this upcoming season. But I think you're going to be very excited. So stay tuned uh, for an announcement on that front as well. Lots to look There's going to be buddy. a lot of us, though. There's going to be a lot of <laughs> yeah. Jamie and I. There's yeah. going to be a lot of Canucks hours to sift through over the course of this season. So we're very excited to share more with you soon. Yeah. Uh, so I, I said you'd be excited about it. I guess that's if you like the show, you'll be excited about it. Well, or, or you're excited to hate on it. Either way, <laughs> yeah. we're happy to have you're you. You're excited to hate. Listen, no, so either way, either way, <laughs> no we're one does that you. for no one no. does that for me. No one ever <laughs> hate listens or hate watches anything these days. Anyways, we are, uh, we're very excited about that again. Stay tuned for more, but we'll, we'll get into it now because yeah, I think I, I opened up the Canucks our rundown yesterday, Drancer, and I think the last, you know, I looked at it and it was like, Ilya Mikheyev is signed with the Canucks. Like, that's that's where we were last right. time, right? Basically free agency, I think, and a couple days after that was our uh, our last show together. So we, we had a little bit of an opportunity to talk about some of the, the additions. A lot has happened since then. A lot also hasn't happened in a way, but it's interesting to kind of sit here on the eve of training camp, and we'll do a, a, a real in-depth kind of training camp preview tomorrow on the show but it's interesting to sit here and with a bit of perspective now take stock of again what happened over the course of the summer and maybe just as interestingly for this team what didn't happen over the course of the summer well and there were some surprises i i think i mean first of all the lack of activity as a whole was a major surprise um you know one thing though and you can go read my interview with patrick alvin from penticton from the lakefront um last week or over the weekend 
You know, one thing that stands out to me as I talk to Alvin on the record, as I talk off record with various Canucks sources, is just how big an impact the flat cap had, right? The Canucks Mm -hmm. have a lot of their cap space allocated to the specific position, wingers, where we saw the market completely flatline, right? Where teams couldn't give guys away. And if they had really good players and could give them away, they got very little in return, right? You think about Bjorkstrand. You think about all of the trades we saw over the course of the year where winger, the market value on wingers in particular completely collapsed. Even up to the high end of Alex Debrinkit, which not that they got nothing for him, but I think would have surprised people a little bit. You know, it wasn't for sure. the, the incredible world-beating package that no. you might have guessed for a 40-year-old, 40-goal scorer. 40-goal <laughs> scorer, yeah. 40-goal yeah, I mean, scorer, 24 years old. Yeah, he's a top-five goal scorer in the NHL over the last two seasons, and he went for what? Uh, top-10 top pick, granted, that's a big that's a big asset, but it was like a top-10 pick, a prospect, and, and another future. I mean, not exactly the godfather offer you'd no. think of for a player with that sort of pedigree across the board. And then meanwhile, yesterday in particular, we saw... What has happened to the market for cost-controlled young defensemen? My goodness. The days of Drewam for Sergeyev are over, right? Like, that—that that is a first-round pick for a guy who had sort of sunk to the third-best, maybe the fourth-best young defenseman in the New York Rangers system mm-hmm. and had made it clear publicly, right, that he needed to move, yeah. that he needed to move. Um, and the Rangers still got a top-ten-protected first-round pick for him. I mean, wild. By the way, do you notice that every first-round pick being dealt now has these protections? I've, like, I need to look into it and actually do the data dive on it, but I can't remember a first-round pick being traded well in advance. Like, even the Calgary Flames first-round pick that they traded to Foley had all manner of protections in it. I feel like the Miller pick was almost like the last one we saw that didn't have specific protections to prevent it from being, you know, a top five or a top ten, right? I mean... It was playoff protected that first year and then yeah. completely unprotected. But now nowadays, these protection structures really call for um, like it being very difficult what for was, the pick to be. What was the mega complicated one? Was it the Monaghan to Montreal? Yeah, deal? that Which one was, was just like <laughs> you needed well, to write a thesis to explain all of the protections. It, it was involved. It. it was because of Florida was involved, right? Yes, but it was yes. because of the, of the Florida impact. But, you know, top 10 protected and then converts to being unprotected so you even have some wiggle room if you're dallas for for missing the playoffs right right uh, the chicago one was top two protected I, it, the the comp ever since the taylor hall trade which happened like six months after the jt miller deal i feel like everyone's really really cognizant of making sure they don't get burned with a stutzla or um you know one of those a uh, bowen byram mm-hmm. one of those types of trades uh, and we talked a lot last year about how that's what the Canucks should be pushing for, but we really have not seen any of those transpire. Um, you know, maybe with the exception of Seth Jones, maybe with the exception of JT Miller, sort of those are the two that stand out to me over the past three years, four years. Uh, other than that, you know, teams are being really, really circumspect and careful. And I think it, teams almost kind of had to be kicked into gear to that for a certain extent when you're talking about 2023 picks because we all know what's going on at the top of the draft in 2023 right so there's extra incentive we you really don't want to get burned and then you know your starting goalie gets hurt and all of a sudden you win the lottery and you're drafting two and you have to give that pick away you do not want to be in that situation especially if you're dallas and picking up a right-handed defenseman who probably is on your third pair this year i mean at the end of the day i like i like lundqvist a fair bit i think he's a good prospect um, but, you know, this also goes to speak to uh, <laughs> what we were talking about also last year in terms of packages that made sense or didn't make sense for the Canucks with JT Miller, right? And my 
stern insistence throughout the year that, you know, the return was not as material as as avoiding, uh, you know, committing long term to a, to a player that age. Right. I mean, that was sort of a consistent theme of yeah. our analysis was you can win a deal, you lose, you can lose a deal, you win. Uh, the Canucks ultimately held on to Miller through the deadline, held on to him through the draft, signed him while we were off air to a big seven year deal. Uh, $8 million per 56 total. Uh, we'll keep him a Canuck until the age of 37. Uh, of course, only 42% of that cap hits guaranteed in the final year, which is worth noting. It, it, it is buyoutable, as yeah. it were, that final season, but not entirely, right? It's not... I've heard some formulations that say, like, well, it's really a six-year deal. Uh, no. <laughs> it's uh, it's a six and a half, maybe. But yeah, so, you know, the Canucks committed in a pretty major way to this core group, and yet when you talk to Alvin... And and if you read that interview that I did with him over the weekend or, you know, the work that I'm doing, talking to sources around the Canucks, what, what stands out to me about what the Canucks have done is that they obviously in, in classic Canucks fashion, th- this team may have changed management. They may have changed their head coach, but they haven't really changed their stripes, right? Making nope. the playoffs remains a huge priority for this upcoming season. And, and they have a good shot. I'm I'm far more bullish on their chances this season than I was going into last, but. We'll get into that. We have plenty of time to get into that. We've got lots of real estate to get into that. But for all that it may superficially appear like this team has doubled down on this group, right? When you listen to what they're saying, right? The difficulty that the flat cap brought in, um, you know, the lack of flexibility that they have as a result of some of the middle class contracts that they have still on the books, you know, the open secret that the club would love to find an upgrade on the right side, mm-hmm. right? No one would be stunned if the Canucks had been in on um, Lundqvist, for example, and, and just thought the price was too high. It is too high, right? That, that, that sort of future doesn't make sense to be going out from the Canucks organization at the moment, right? We heard Ethan Bear's name floated by Ian McIntyre, Sportsnet's Ian McIntyre over the weekend. That would be in line, too, with the sort of deal, especially if the cost is, you know, Certainly not Niels Hoaglander. No. <laughs> but, you know, if the cost is modest, that, that's the sort of deal that could make sense for the Canucks, although uh, $2.2 million cap, it's probably not straightforward to fit onto their books. This team's still looking to upgrade their defense. They know that that remains a weakness for this team, right? There is uh, not enough depth on the blue line, as it were, in Vancouver. There's not enough quality on the blue line, as it were. And, and if they do play one of Quinn Hughes or Ekman Larson on the, on the right side or Travis Dermott, that does blast a hole in their left side that also will have to be addressed here. So for all that this management group has sort of prioritized making the playoffs and kept this group together for now, there's like a big dun-dun-dun ellipsis but that needs to go at the end of that sentence in terms of what we could still see transpire before the season and the fact that the organization itself isn't satisfied with where they stand, like where they're positioned going into a season in which they do still think and like their playoff chances. Well, and I think the kind of the key question for me about how you're going to view this offseason for the team, and it's a question everyone has to answer for themselves, I suppose, but I think some of the things you just talked about point in one direction. It's how much should the lack of movement be read as a vote of confidence versus how much of it is just an indication of, one, 
the general market situation specifically or around the NHL, but also specifically how difficult this team is to move apart and to disassemble, to make major changes on, right? right. Which was a point we talked about ad yeah. nauseum last year. And I think actually it's proven more difficult than we'd even assumed. And I think probably to more disassemble. difficult than the front office might have thought. Uh, when they came in, sure, yes. surely. And, and so I think there was this kind of because we had heard pretty directly from the front office of we'd like to make changes. There's these changes that need to happen, right? We all knew Jim Rutherford's uh, track record and his willingness to make bold moves when he comes into an organization. Bit of a gunslinger yeah. on the trade market, typically. It felt like when it didn't happen, the instant kind of reaction was, oh, they must have they been really convinced by this team. But I think, again, the more you hear, the more of your reporting that you read and, and the conversation with Patrick Alvin, and you just look around what else or, happened. Or Alvin's comment on how we have to stop talking about the last 57 games, they still miss the playoffs to, to yep. McIntyre over the weekend, right? Yep. I mean, it all points in one direction. And that direction is that management's not satisfied, even if they do think that this group should have enough juice to make the playoffs. So I don't think, from my reading, it wasn't so much of a... Oh, you know what? Let's keep the let's get this team one more kick of the can because we actually really like uh, what we have here. Not not that they hate what they have here. There's obviously parts they like, but it was less that than you know what? These prices just don't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. We want to make changes, but we also have certain prices and certain you know breaking points in mind. Like Patrick Alvin said to you, I wasn't willing to pay to to clear up cap space. Right. I think that's a very reasonable position for this team to take. A very reasonable position. It's the right move, but they have also made this team even harder to disassemble, right? I'm sensitive to the idea that the market caused a lot of headaches for Canucks management. I'm less sensitive to the idea that they were simply battered about by forces outside their control when they also made 70-plus million worth of long-term commitments mm -hmm. to forwards while not without touching sort of the key weakness of this club, which is on the back end, right? That sort of makes me a little bit nervous about exactly how they pursued this. I'd add, too, that most of those commitments were to guys who, you know, performed at a level they hadn't previously from a production standpoint with obvious percentage uh, indicators that suggest their production might have been overheated, right? Uh, Ilya Mikhaev scored at a rate he's never come close to in the NHL pr previously, right? He was, he was really at a 30-goal pace. You know, he had 20 goals for the first time. Missed like 28 games. He was yeah. really at a 30-goal pace with a shooting percentage that was almost double his career rate going into last year. JT Miller was fifth in the NHL in individual point percentage. You know, sort of my concern here is, have they further tied their hands? And in so doing, have they bought high on, on a pair of players? Now, not a huge deal because, like, that's a, that's a valid concern. But I, I also want to note, one thing is, is that they haven't paid JT Miller like a 99-point guy. He doesn't need to no, be a 99-point guy. That's a really important part of this consideration. To, to, he, can, he can decline from that mark, and I think it's very fair to expect that he will for yeah. a variety of reasons, and that doesn't mean the deal's a disaster. No, no. They've, yeah. paid him, they've paid him like a first-line player, yeah. not like a superstar player, right? That's, that's effectively the deal that Miller has signed. The, the long-term risk, the, the aging risk, the aging curve risk that sort of kicks in with some of the comparables, uh, closest comparables to JT Miller being guys like you know, there's some bad news guys in there like Jamie Benn. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some guys like Brad Richards. But there's also some guys like Getzlaff and Kopitar and Voracek that are sort of the fat part of the bell curve here where, you know, they remained productive, but maybe their two-way effectiveness fell off a bit, right? Uh, that's sort of uh, how some of these deals tend to age, uh, particularly when you're doing them with with players in their late 20s. So 
Um, you know, and, and same with Mikhaev. Mikhaev's such a high-end defensive player and such a good penalty killer and such a fast, unique piece that, you know, even if he is the goal scorer that he was in his first two seasons, it only is an overpay of like a million dollars or like a million and a bit as opposed to being a massive contract for a guy who can't justify that cost it's, at all. It's funny because these, this is not how free agency contracts in particular, but any big, big money long-term deals get evaluated in the Canadian market. But yeah, with both of those guys, they can decline statistically and still represent pretty decent value. And right. especially with McKay, because he does so many other things, you know, outside of, of goal scoring that should help this team and can complement the team. You know, you mentioned it there, and we, and we talked about it a lot last season about just the difficulty of of unraveling this team, and that's something that, again, exceeded our expectations, probably exceeded the expectations of Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford. And one of my questions coming into this season is, what are the stakes of this year? Because coming into last year, it felt pretty clear: if things go poorly, if things go off the rail, everything's on the table, right? And it was, and it was, and we saw massive organizational changes as a result: new coaching staff new management, completely redone front office. The only thing we didn't see and haven't seen is massive personnel changes. So you think about, you, you look at it that way and you think, okay, well, if this team struggles again, and again, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, they're going to struggle, they're going to miss the playoffs. We'll get to more of our, you know, but what, they might. what's going to happen. They might. It's a possibility. Yeah. You have to be aware of that possibility. I, I, again, I think that's, a, a, like, if you're talking, what I mean, and we also have to define what's struggling. Like, for me... 85 points is a thin part of the bell curve. Not not an outcome I'm expecting from this group, right? Yeah. I, I expect this group to be mid-90s, um, you know, in that range, right? Mid-90s would sort of be, to me, the middle part of the range with, you know, 92 being a low end and 98 to 100 being sort of the high end of the fat part. Yeah. And then anything more than that is unlikely and anything significantly less than that, to me, would be also unlikely, right? So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a team that's still shaping up honestly, like they were shaping up going in the last season as sort of a fringe playoff team, but an improved one from the one we saw a year ago. Yeah, and that's the question for me is it's not as simple as, okay, this team, let's say this team finishes with 90 points and it's not because of, you know, long-term injuries to Thatcher Demko or Elias Pettersson or right. Quinn Hughes. It's just that's what they finish with. It's not clear to me what the next step is because as you said, they've taken a team that was already hard to break up and they've made it in many ways harder to break up and it's, and you've already changed the coach you've are, now last year of his deal so there's opportunities to uh, for change there which we can discuss you've already changed the front office it doesn't feel as clearly defined to me where if things go wrong i'm not sure what the next step is forward for this franchise i think the concern that i have jamie is not about the stakes of this season right because what whatever are the stakes for a fringe playoff team you know, like sure. you're you're expected to be a coin flip to make the playoffs. Like Vegas has you priced out as a coin flip to be a playoff team. Your over under is set at ninety two point five. Like the stakes for a fringe playoff team are never about the upcoming year. You make it great, you miss it. That's you know within the realm of expectation too, right? Like both both are realistic outcomes for this team. They could yeah. be in, they could be out. You know, I honestly wouldn't bet very strongly one way or the other on either outcome yet. I might have a more pronounced opinion once I see training camp, once I see what else they do, once I see how exactly the waiver uh, deadline passes, one, once I see, once we get to opening night, I think I'll, I'll be more prepared to, you know, put my foot down on exactly what I expect over the first 30 games. And after the, they've played 30 games, I'll start to talk with some certainty about mm -hmm. what I think they are, right? That's sort of how this will progress, but... But in terms of the stakes for a fringe playoff team, you know, you make it, 
great. You miss it. Not so great. But where are you going from there, right? If you make it, even if you win a round, are you a contender the next year, right? Like, does Bruce Boudreaux, does the Bruce Boudreaux impact make them a contender now? That's sort of the one lingering bit of uncertainty is Boudreaux has a tendency to, you know, elevate teams and tends to roll into the playoffs with 100-plus points. Well, if this team's a 110-plus point team, then that's a big change from what we're talking about, right? Again, I think that's the thin part of the bell curve. If they're a true disaster and they've made these types of commitments to a variety of forwards, then that's a very different conversation. But in the fat part of the bell curve anyway, I almost feel like this season is not stakes-free, but just we have to be careful about it because this team's unlikely to get the sort of draft capital or cap space that will enable them to improve rapidly. They're kind of locked in for a couple of years with this main core group, and maybe for many years thereafter, depending on how things play out with both Bo Horvat and then Elias Pettersson next summer, right? This might be the group. And if they make the playoffs or not, it feels like it's going to be tough to change. Yeah. And it feels like it's going to be tough to win big. I almost feel like the stakes of this season are more about looking ahead because of the stasis that unfolded around this club over the course of the offseason. My, my concerns are longer term than they are about what this team does this year and whether or not they make the playoffs. Well, that, that's an interesting answer because, as you said, if they finish with 92 points and miss the playoffs or they finish with 99 points and maybe even win around in the playoffs because they get a favorable matchup. It doesn't change my opinion is. either way about who they are. Well, and not only does it, it... It doesn't even come down to changing someone's opinion or not. It's just... There's only so many paths available to them right now, right? right? So it's become so difficult to change direction that even if you have a mildly disappointing season, you you can't dramatically change direction as a response to that because you're locked in to a certain extent. And I wonder if, as you said a little bit there, you know, it's going to be much more about the shape of how the season unfolds than what the actual result is, right? So if you do get those next steps in terms of being a superstar from Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes, right? It, if you do get continued performance from Vasily Podkols and a bounce back from Niels Hoaglander, all of these other things, that's going to have a bigger impact on how you approach the offseason than just did you make the playoffs or did you miss the playoffs, yeah. right? Well, and I, and I think that's also, will they make the playoffs, right? Evergreen sports talk yes. topic, right? And we'll get into it all we will talk year. We all year. It's my favorite subject. To be totally honest we'll with you, it's my favorite subject. Dom Lucian's playoff odds, baby. <laughs> Seriously, can't Let's wait. Let's go. Can't wait. But, you know, what's really difficult to talk about and to understand sometimes in sports in particular, right, is the playoff or not question almost obscures what's really at stake for this team, which is how do they escape the middle that they've been stuck in now really ever since they made the JT Miller trade, right? One year they made the playoffs, one, two years they missed, one year really went badly, one start really went badly, right? But I mean, this team is basically who they are. They're a fringe playoff team, right? Then they've sort of been locked into that for the last three years. How do they escape that? How do they escape yeah. that? And whether they make the playoffs or not, that's not the big question about this season. That's not the big question that I think management needs to explain or, or um, prove to this market it's do you have a plan do you have a plan to get out of the mushy middle that this team has been stuck in yeah and i think my concern about their offseason moves are not do they position the canucks better to make the playoffs they do 
No question no, no about, it. about it. I'm not even arguing that. No. I, I never would. There's I think they're zero I think they're a better team. Yeah. I think they're a faster team up front. I think they're a deeper team up front. I think having stability on the Miller front going into the season was essential if this team was going to make a playoff run this year. I think the concern that you have is, are they now not, not just in the mushy middle this season, but have the moves they made this summer served as like weights that will prevent them from sort of propelling themselves out with the pace with which this market would surely love. Yeah, That's my concern going into this season. I feel like those are the stakes for management. It's big picture stuff. It's not this season and and really getting confused or getting bogged down into focusing on the evergreen topic we love so much is almost a distraction from what really matters about what this new management group has done. Well, I can imagine, and we'll take a break soon here, but kind of last thought on the stakes question. I can imagine, it's not the most likely scenario either way, but a situation where the team misses the playoffs, but because they get some key improvements from key players, you actually feel better about their long-term future than you do right now. And I can imagine the flip side, which they sneak into the playoffs. Double down. Based on some, uh, maybe some uh, unsustainable percentages or whatever, and you don't see those key improvements uh, from important players and you actually feel slightly worse. So it's a good point that, look, just selfishly as somebody who covers the team, I want to see them in the playoffs because I think it would be enjoyable. I would love to see playoff games at Rogers Arena for the fans. That would be awesome. And for and for the guys who've been through a lot of losing here. Totally. Like Absolutely. Bo Horvat deserves to play big games, yep. whether he's extended or not. I'd like to see him play big so games. Purely on a selfish level, I would love to see that. But again, it, it is important to keep in mind that it is kind of an arbitrary marker, right? It doesn't it doesn't signify that all of a sudden you're on this incredible come up. Just as missing doesn't signify that this team's a disaster all of a sudden, right? No, no, it doesn't. But it is tough to miss having ma- made the commitments they did this oh, yeah. off. Like, that would be that difficult. Would, that would be tough to swallow. It'd be but, really tough. But on the other hand, on the other hand, I think the big picture stakes are just larger, larger than our usual evergreen. Will they or won't they making the playoffs ahead of training camp? Uh, and that's sort of what's so fascinating and what's going to be so fun to unpack over the course of this year. All right. I want to get into some of these specific player questions going into uh, training camp, which opens later this week. Quinn Hughes, obviously, will he play on the right side? Will he play with OEL? OEL we've heard that that's uh, a possibility, but they're going to try that out. We'll talk about that. I'll get into Bo Horvat's situation a little later in the show as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, so get your thoughts in as well. We want to hear from you throughout the course of the show. It is Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks Insider Thomas Strands. Our, our first show back of the new year. Excited to be back for year two. Uh, we had a couple questions. Yeah, we are back regularly now on air for uh, for as long as the Canucks season goes, I suppose. Five days a week in some <laughs> format. You and I, you and I will be talking about the Canucks. Yes, for at least an hour. Yes, at least one Canucks hour. Uh huh. And stay tuned. Stay tuned for potentially perhaps uh, more. Potentially more on that. Perhaps uh, hours. Uh, Canucks hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All Star Team. AvenueMachinery.ca or DouglasLakeEquipment.com, and we are coming to you live from the Kin Tech Studio. Six fifty. Six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can keep your thoughts coming in. Teased it just on the uh, the other side of the break there, Drancer. And again, we'll do a um, a real in-depth training camp preview tomorrow, right? With some of the big questions, what do we want to see 
Uh, what do we expect to see? What can we take from training camp and preseason and all that? But one of the things that has dominated the conversation uh, amongst Canucks fans and Canucks media recently is the notion of Quinn Hughes moving from his left side to play on the right side and specifically not just generally playing on the right side, but playing on the right side on a top pairing with Oliver ekman Larson. We've heard Quinn Hughes talk about it. He's had conversation with Bruce Boudreaux, who said he's going to try it. Now, has it's a he, thing. Has he been singing from the same hymn book as Bruce, though? You think there's some disagreement? Well, the 32 Thoughts podcast comments seemed to imply that it was, like, situational and here and there. Yes. And I like playing with Luke. And yes, felt pretty different. Felt pretty different. I think they've been singing from the same hymn book to the extent that it's something we're going to see at training camp in preseason. Sure. Now, maybe they have different expectations about how long it's going to last, whether it's going to be the number one option, all of that. But it's an experiment we are going to see tried. My favorite part of training camp, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Jamie, is when I get to see the lines for the first time. And not just because I get to compete with Batch to see who gets them <laughs> out first. Uh, Batch, by the way, is 1-0 on the season. We've decided we're going to keep score. All right, let's We've decided it. we're truly going to find out who's the quickest gun in Vancouver. Um but batches batches want to know. And by the way, while I pretend to compete with batch in this area, the only time I ever win is if I know them ahead of time for whatever reason, which happens like, you know, twice a year. Batch always wins. Batch is good. Batch is very fast. He, he, he is very, very good at it. <laughs> batch is 1000% Leonardo DiCaprio from The Quick and the Dead. And I am <laughs> the latter part of The Quick and the Dead. So batch want to know. We'll keep score throughout the year and see who is the fastest line rush tweeter. Uh, over the course of the season. Anyway, my favorite part is is when we see the lines for the first time and get to read way too much into it, right? Because so much goes into deciding training camp lines, right? First of all, you're separating everyone into two groups. There's going to be, a, you know, two veteran groups and one group of kind of like AHL-bound yep. guys. And, you know, you're trying to make sure that things are balanced for the scrimmages, right? You're trying to uh, sort through, like, you know, for example, day one of training camp, you're going to have group one go, and then they get a rest. Group two goes. Mm -hmm. And then you play a scrimmage. Well, guess what? Group one always wins. Yes. Always rested. wins. And then you flip. And then guess what? Group one always wins. And then finally you get to a scrimmage where it's sort of more level. But that's kind of how training camp unfolds. And you always have to keep that context in mind, too, evaluating performance at camp. There's always one tired team at the scrimmage, right? At least until the third scrimmage where it matters a little bit more. And a coach spends a lot of time figuring out what do I want to see? Who do I want to give an opportunity to? Maybe he puts pairs together instead of lines. You know what I'm saying? Uh, up front, anyway. On the back end, you know, I do think, I do think, and I don't know this, I think this, I do think we will see Ekman, Larson, and Hughes together to open camp. But don't be surprised if we see both guys try the right side. Don't be surprised if Boudreaux lets his two best defensemen Right, not even yep. talking about handedness, just as two best guys, figure out who's more comfortable on the right side, how the pair works best. Like, don't be surprised by that. I, I think that's what we're going to see. To be totally honest well, with you, that approach to me it strikes me as a very Bruce Boudreaux approach, right? For a couple of different reasons. One, it's put your two best defensemen together, right? Bet on talent. Hey, how are we going to assemble our defense? You know, we've got some interesting pieces, obviously some problems <laughs> from a talent perspective on defense that you'd like to fix, but some good pieces as well. How do they all fit together? Well, as a starting point, let's put our two best guys together and get them to figure it out. And again, the Bruce Boudreaux kind of vibes-braced approach, I'm not going to dictate which one of you it has to be. You guys are two really talented, smart, experienced hockey players now. You guys can figure it out. And, and I think 
I like that approach. I'm kind of agnostic on the whole should Quinn Hughes move over to the right side, should he stay on the left side thing. There's some parts I really like about it. More than anything, I like the idea of just put your two best defensemen out there. They're, they're smart, talented hockey players. Let them figure it out. And I would bet certainly on Quinn Hughes to figure it out because he has this very established track well, and, record of and, kind of setting challenges for himself. And they're both them. so skilled. They're both so skilled with the puck. I think either guy can figure it out. I'm not worried about either guy. But for sure, I'm not worried about Quinn Hughes figuring it out. Quinn no. Hughes, I think you can move Quinn Hughes to center and he'd be like a 65-point guy. Yeah. Like, he's incredible. So I think there's also just really something to be said. <laughs> Quinn for, Hughes becomes a high-end playmaking center. Sure. Yeah. Like nothing would surprise me with Quinn Hughes. He can do it all. Figuring out ways to get Quinn Hughes on the ice more, right? So now all of a sudden you have the option, even if it's not your number one option, but you mm-hmm. have the, the you have it in your back pocket, right? Oh, hey, we're uh, we're trailing late in the game. Let's move Quinn Hughes to the right side and get him with OEL. And we can, we can juice some extra offense from that. Anything you can do to increase your ability to put Quinn Hughes on the ice is a good thing because he's so incredibly talented. He's the obvious, the bedrock part of that, uh, of that blue line. And yeah, for me, it's not as important which one is on the right side and which one is on the left side as it is that they're playing together because I think that gives you your best chance to have a really high-end, genuine kind of star-level top pairing is if you put those two together. So why not do it? And now it creates some questions further down the blue line, which we can get into, and there's some domino effects from it at all. But yeah, as a starting point, why not put your best two guys together and, and bank on their talent to figure it out? There are times, too, where uniting a top pair that didn't exist gives a team a new gear. Like, I always think about the Bruins in 2011. I'm like everyone How else. Dare in, you? Like everyone else in this market, I always am thinking about the Bruins. Do you see Zdeno <laughs> Chara retired yes. today? Here's the most annoying Zdeno Chara stat from a Vancouver perspective. You ready for this? Sure. Okay. So from 2008 through 2012, uh-huh. four-year stretch, which includes the 2011 Canucks playoff run. Daniel, Henrik, and Alex Burroughs ranked 2-3-4 in the NHL by plus-minus. So okay. by goal differential. Okay. Number one was Zdeno Chara. Sure. <laughs> That's my most annoying Zdeno Chara stat by a lot, right? Like, when he was at his best, he was the best driver of goal differential in the league. And that, to me, is, is like a summary of... You know, congratulations, tip of the cap to a to a great career. Phenomenal career. But also under my breath, like, come on, man. <laughs> come on. Anyway, when the Bruins were in that first round, right, no one thought of them as a cup contender, right? They had to win three overtime game or two overtime game sevens to, to get to the point where they uh, compete in the Stanley Cup final. Or was it three? Yeah, it was three, right? Because uh, Nathan Horton. Yeah, anyway, so it was three. Um. No, two. It was two. I'd have to go back a little bit. I think they won three game sevens, though. Anyway, what they did was it wasn't working at the start of their playoff run with Cabrera and Chara, and they actually fell behind in their very first series 2-0. And then they put Seidenberg with Chara, and that gave them a totally new level, and they started to dominate teams at the top of the lineup, and that sort of powered their run through the playoffs. You know, could that happen with the Canucks? I'm not sure, but one thing that that Bruins team had was a pretty thin blue line, like... Cabriolet McQuaid, second pair, um, you know, Andrew Ference on their third pair with a sort of rotating cast of guys, including mm-hmm. Johnny Boychuk, who was very much not Johnny Boychuk yet, right? Like, yes. there was a point in the playoffs where he was on the ice for 11 straight goals, including the Rafi Torres uh, last second winner in the, in, the, in the first game. Like, there was a lot of, uh, Johnny Boychuk was not who he became very quickly at that point, especially defensively. So, you know, you sort of look through, 
that blue line, it was better than what Vancouver has today for sure. But nonetheless, if you can win at the top of your lineup, like at the end of the day, if you can win at the top of your lineup, it really creates a ton of easier sledding for guys further down. And for a top-heavy team with a ton of high-end skill like the Canucks have, it's worth a shot. Like if you can create a 20-minute environment where your team's 54 55% yeah. Um, shot attempt differential, driving that kind of shot differential, that much more likely than their opponent to score the next goal. Like that's that's so much of the task completed, particularly when you also have great goaltending and when you also have at least one half of your special teams that should be special, right? The Canucks power play should be special. So if they can create a really strong top of the lineup look, I mean, that's a huge, huge thing. I think that's well worth any of your concerns about the 15 minutes that you play at, you know, 47% control of shot attempts or and 45% at the bottom end. Like, it's well worth it if you were crushing teams at the top end. And, and Hughes OEL at least gives them a shot to do that. And I think there's a benefit to having a kind of security blanket pair, which you can put out with confidence in any situation, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you know, okay, this is an offensive zone draw. So, yeah, we got to get Queen Hughes out there. But you also have Luke Shen on his pair. And all, all respect to Luke Shen, he's taken things off the table for you. Uh, offensively, you can put that group out there. And who, you know, one of the questions would be, okay, if Quinn Hughes and OEL are together, who's your quote unquote matchup pairing? I mean, it might end up being Quinn Hughes and OEL. No, it is Quinn Hughes and OEL. That's the whole point. The whole point is that you play teams straight up. Yeah. I like that. One of the things I, and and I want to get into this conversation with Quinn Hughes specifically as well. And, you know, as I said, he's not shy about embracing challenges, embracing the idea of improving his game in different ways. He's very open about that. That's one of the things I would like to see. It's not so much from Quinn Hughes, but from the coaching staff is, as you said, play straight up, right? Like, yeah, look for offensive opportunities, right? You don't, you know, look for ways to manage his minutes, but he's an elite defenseman. Play him like one. Let him go out there against the best players on the other team and and prove that he can tilt the ice even against them. Well, it, this team doesn't win unless Quinn Hughes plays no, like 1A defenseman minutes, in my opinion, right? Uh, certainly they don't win big in the context of, the long term for this yeah. team, right? Quinn Hughes needs to be out there all the time. You cannot shy away from him matchup wise. Boudreaux tends not to shy away from players matchup wise in terms of how he deploys. Like he just plays his best. And so, you know, putting Hughes in a situation like that where he's your big minutes guy, you need to do it. And and sort of to squirrel this conversation a little bit and, and change topics rapidly. One concern that I have about the Canucks playoff hopes in general, right? Mm-hmm. Is while they have exceptional center depth and exceptional center talent, right? They don't have a natural guy who's going to go in and battle toughs and come out with crooked numbers from a underlying perspective and also produce, right? Pedersen, I think, has the chops to be a really, really good defensive player, but we haven't seen him consistently handle toughs and come out ahead to this point in his career. JT Miller handled Tufts pretty well last season, but ideally that's not where you're using him. Bo Horvat has handled Tufts throughout his career and done well, but not... Not could, elite. Not Couturier well. No. Not Elias Lindholm well. Not, you know, uh, Selkie nominee well. He, he's a guy who can still produce in Tufts and hold the fort, but he's not a guy who crushes tough competition. And that's sort of one thing that I worry about a little bit. Like, you look at this offense or this forward group on paper... And it's delicious, right? Like, there's so much talent. So much offensive talent. But there isn't really a natural matchup centerman. And there's really only three wingers that I think this team is going to go into this season really trusting 
as tough minutes types. And that's Tanner Pearson, mm-hmm. Ilya Mikhaev, and Brock Besser. Yeah. Right? Like, we haven't seen them use Garland in that, in that way. Neither Green nor Boudreaux did, right? They both used him as a middle six guy. Pod Colson's 20. To find a high-end 20-year-old defensive winger is not possible, right? Like, Mark Stone's not Mark Stone at 20. Valerie Nichushkin is not Valerie Nichushkin at 20. Not even close. No. <laughs> no you go, you, well, no, you go back and look at his career. 100%. It a while to develop into took that. took a long time. Like, the defensive side of the game, it's so rare to have a 20-year-old who makes a huge impact defensively. Like, one of the few guys of the last 10 years who did it was Couture, Logan Couture in San Jose. Like, came into the league as, like, a ready-made defensive driver. Almost no one else does it. Almost no one Like, it's just exceptionally rare. And I do think that once Pod, Pod Colson's up and running, he's going to be able to do that and drive really good defensive results. You can see it in the work rate. You can see it in the conscientiousness with which he plays defense. But to expect that from him this season feels like a little too much. Yeah. Kuzmenko is playing North American hockey for the first time. It's going to take him some, take him a bit for sure. And if he that's ever, not his, that's not his profile. That's it, not what you're expecting. From no, him necessarily. it's not. That's not what, what he played like in the, in the K. Um, you know, so Hoaglander has been a high event guy throughout his career. Um, I'm sure there's a guy that I haven't mentioned yet that I just probably like, who's there's slipping so, my a lot mind. Of wingers. But you know, all told you get to this point and it's like, how do you build a top line? Do you, do you go it again with, Miller, Pearson, Besser. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then Mikhaev with Horvat, and you don't have Pearson to throw on that line. So is nope. it Kuzmenko or Garland? Um, and then you end up with Pedersen, and you know it's just it's really hard to build forward lines that make a ton of sense. I heard a Bruce Boudreau quote the other day that he's looked at his whiteboard five hundred times, like redone it five hundred times. There's a reason for that. It's really tough to figure out how to build an optimal forward alignment with this team the way it's composed. And I think no matter how you sort of do it, like one, one question I have, this isn't a concern so much as a question. One question I have is, do the Canucks have the type of centerman that can win tough matchups from a defensive standpoint and play that responsible game they need, right? And do they have enough of those players that are skilled but are also high-end competitors, right? Right. And, and you think about what it looks like when Tampa Bay wins in the playoffs, right? You think about a guy like Andres Palat, who's now in New Jersey, who may not be the biggest guy, but the way that he plays, right? You think about Calgary, right? And you look Calgary's forward group, and Vancouver's is better on paper. And yet they go Kadri, Lindholm, Backlund down the middle. Their worst defensive center was a Selkie nominee last year, right? Then they have guys like Mangiapane and Coleman and Toffoli, you know, like all these conscientious guys who you'd have no concern playing in tough minutes. And, you know, that's sort of an advantage that Sutter's going to have. I just don't know exactly how it falls out with the Canucks, how exactly they do it. But I sort of wonder if this forward group is immensely skilled, but could be less than the sum of their parts, unless, you know, a lot of their guys level up in terms of the overall uh, defensive awareness of their game. Well, I'm going to be fascinated to see, and it, it it might take some time to really get a sense of where they're leaning, but even as you said, just the kind of forward duos we see in mm-hmm. Whistler, right? Oh. Because there are so many different ways. There are so many different ways and we'll to arrange this group. You can go through any of the wingers that figure to be in the top nine, and you can make a case to pair them with basically any of the centers, right? You, you can For go sure. down the list and say, you know, okay, yeah, I can see how they, they would fit together. There's so many different configurations as you said a lot of them you end up with two lines you feel really good about 
and then a third line that's kind of, oh, okay, well, you just, you just put the rest on the third line, right? That's, I, like, I've spent a lot of time just kind of mentally jotting down line configurations, and that's kind of how you end up a lot And of so is Boudreaux, by his own admission, right? It, yeah. It's, we, we don't, because there's so many new parts to this group, even though this group has been together as a core group for a long time, because JT Miller is, has started to play as a center full-time, mm-hmm. where, where he's spent time on the wing, like, we know what JT Miller looks like with a variety of players on this team. I don't feel like we know exactly how his wingers look like when he's a number one center and you've got Horvat and Pedersen both healthy and in the lineup. And so, you know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. It's going to be fascinating to watch how Boudreaux takes his first crack at solving and that problem. And to your point about who's the guy who plays those classically tough minutes but can also tilt the ice and still produce, you know, as we said, and you said, Quinn Hughes has to be that 1A defenseman for this team. I kind of look at Elias Pettersson in that role. Like, I would like to see them lay that gauntlet down, for throw the gauntlet down in front of Elias Pettersson and challenge him to be that player because I think he, I think he has the upside. Now, you're obviously, when you have the centers that the Canucks have, Bo Horvat's going to get his share of tough minutes, right? And one of the luxuries that Bruce Boudreau has is maybe he doesn't feel like he has to designate, okay, you're my tough minute guy because he has three centers that he at least trusts quite a bit to put out there. But yeah, that's something I would love to see from Elias Pettersson. I think it's really important to see from Elias Pettersson is that trust and that confidence in him to go out and play those minutes. I want to ask you a question and I want to open the question to our listeners too. And maybe we don't answer it until the other side of the break. Like I'll give you some time to think of it because I'm putting you on the spot. But I have my answer. And I'm curious to know what our listeners think. What is the line that Boudreaux could trot out on day one of training camp that would most make you go like, oh, oh, he he solved it. Like, <laughs> what would be the line that you'd see that would most excite you in terms of the Canucks prospects this season? I'm curious to know what our what our listeners think All right, as well. I will I will think that I think about that uh, in the break. Before we get to break, quickly here, uh, Marty the Red. Uh, had this question or this text in uh, that I want to comment on quickly because we've heard the comments from Quinn Hughes about getting more shots on goal. Marty the Red says, regarding more shots on goal, a comment as it was brought up by Hughes, definitely you have to try OEL and Hughes on power play one. I think that would be a total mistake. To me, the easiest thing to figure out from a usage point, from a tactical coaching point, is who's going to be on power play one. That is the, I mean, other than I guess Thatcher Demko is your number one goalie. Other than that, the easiest thing to figure out is What's power play one? Because you know the five people who should be on it. To me. I, I think I think Bruce Boudreaux would love, and I think the Canucks organization would love to find a natural way to get Oliver Ekman Larson onto PP1. I think they would love to put Ekman Larson in as many offensive situations as they could. Because, you know, guy had guy had eight points in seven games yeah. with when Quinn Hughes wasn't in the lineup. He's, he's really talented. He's a legitimate power play one guy. It's just that on a team with Quinn Hughes, you know. Quinn Hughes plays PP1. Like, we don't have to unpack why. We all know why, right? And so, for all that the organization would love to find a way to do that, when you have Miller, Hughes, Pedersen, and Horvat up high, you don't mess with it. And and Brock Besser, by the way, isn't a natural fit at the net front, but he's become really good there. Like, really good. I keep hearing from NHL scouts, NHL coaches, people like that. They're like, you know, there's maybe a changing of the guard in terms of what teams are looking for mm-hmm. in, at the net front. Like, do you remember John Scott at the net front? Or yes. they, the Boston Bruins Zidane Chara. spent a whole year trotting out Zidane Chara there. Mm-hmm. Teams don't want that anymore. Kind of like in the NBA, how you need to be able to play a high-low passing game. And Joel, uh, Joel Embiid and obviously Nikola Jokic are yep. kind of like the uh, sort of fulcrum of that movement. You need big men who can pass. 
you need to be able to move the puck down low. There's actually a movement of the net front guy to more of a down low cycle role. You kind of need more skilled guys and key passers down there. And what's sort of going to be interesting is right now at the focal point of that evolution could be the Canucks, not just because of Besser, but also because of Andre Kuzmenko, Mm -hmm. who's definitely going to play net front. I think he'll start at PP1, but I think there's a chance that he could end up on PP... Or sorry, I think he'll start on PP2. I think they'll keep the exact same personnel. But there's a real chance that he could end up moving on to PP1. And here's an interesting detail. I, at one point this summer, was you know, on my high horse talking to someone with the <laughs> Canucks organization. No, yeah. no. And I was like, look, I have, a, I have a bad theory. I have a bad theory I want to share with you, member of the Canucks. I think Connor Garland would crush at the net front. <laughs> and I was told that that was a discussion point between the coaching staff and Garland at one point toward the end of last season that they think he has the skill set to do it with the way that he competes, with the way that he could facilitate the cycle, with his playmaking. Tight control in front of the net as well. With and the way handling. he chokes up on his stick. You know how he like yep. basically oh, yeah. is like he basically is passing. On an incredibly puck. short stick already. Yeah. I, I mean, it's incredible. So, I, you know, I think that's been discussed internally, including with Garland. Now, I don't think he's going to start there because they've got Kuzmenko. I think they're going to have a Kuz. They're going to try to build an above average PP2 around Oliver Ekman, Larson, Kuzmenko, and Garland. I don't know who the other two guys will be, but that's how they're going to try to do it, at least to open the season. We'll learn an awful lot more. But there's a ton of weapons. And, and honestly, Garland, OEL, and Kuzmenko, whether it's Pod Colson who slots in there, whether it's Hoaglander, whether it's Tanner, Tanner Pearson, Pearson, like you have to be able to find an average PP2 out of that group. There's enough skill there. There's three guys who could very, very credibly make a case to be on PP1. We'll, we'll take the break quickly here, but just your point about Besser and his fit with that power play one unit this is kind of the theme of the segment. Yeah, like bet on talent. If you, if you run the, the power play one unit that we're used to seeing, those are your five best players, right? Yep. So yeah, get them on the ice together and let them figure it out. And I would rather have somebody in that net front position who's also very skilled in his own right. And and it's not his best. Besser's not small. He's a, he's a large physical player. He's not a classic power forward, but he can hold his own in those battles in front of the net. I would rather have somebody who can, in those fluid situations, right? I don't want to take skill off of the ice because there's there's unexpected times where the puck is going to come to Brock Besser and he has to make a play to keep possession alive. I would rather have Brock Besser there than somebody who's there just because they're 6'3", right? Well, yeah, and he's also, except he's become really, really good at it. And the Canucks power play, I think, like, what's the thing I'm most confident about with this Canucks team this season? Like, it's not JT Miller's a point-per-game guy. It's not... Elias Pettersson takes a step. It's not Quinn Hughes hits 75 points. Honestly, it's that the power play is a top five yeah. unit. Like, the, I think their power play should be, a well, will be a top five power play percentage unit, which gives them, you know, a fair bit of, like, a pretty high floor in terms of team performance. And it's one of the reasons why I sort of put the Canucks point range so high. Like, I'd be shocked by a really poor season in part because I think they're going to absolutely ventilate teams five on four. You can make up a lot of ground that you maybe give up from a five on five possession standpoint if you have really good goaltending and at least one elite special team. Yeah. Right. And, and then and then just a penalty kill unit that doesn't, you know, aim a Gatling gun. Foot. Well, no, aim a Gatling gun at your foot <laughs> and just yeah. uncork. Shred uh, it. We got to take a break. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drance threw it out there. What's the line that Bruce Boudreaux could throw it in training camp or the preseason, the forward line that would get you most excited? for the Canucks season. I'll think about it. I'll give you my answer as well. Lots of good submissions coming in. So keep your thoughts coming. Get yours in. Uh, We'll talk about it on the other side. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650.